Amen. Amen. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for that prayer. Thank you, praise team. That's beautiful, beautiful songs today and wonderful worship and just looking out, seeing everybody engage in the songs. That's beautiful, beautiful. All right, good to have you today in God's house. We're glad that you're here with us to worship. I want you to take your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, we're going to continue our series through the book of Mark. And uh, today's message is entitled Plots and Plans, Plots and Plans. And I want to preach a message as we continue through it. We've got about five chapters left in the book of Mark. It's going to be a little longer than I wanted or had hoped, but I am actually loving the whole element of it and learning from it greatly from my own personal walk with the Lord. Okay, so let's stand together. We'll read Mark 12, verses 1 to 12. Mark 12, 1 to 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it. And he dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower. And he rented it out to the vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some, killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. You may be seated. Plots and plans. This parable, this, this story by Jesus, he rarely uses a parable in the book of Mark. This is uh, the only one that he uses through the whole book of Mark, whereas other writers use all kinds of parables. But this one predicts his resurrection by the religious leaders. And a matter of fact, he exposes their plot to kill him, which is amazing. He tells them two days before they're going to kill him, it's Wednesday now, Friday before his crucifixion. He tells them two days before I'm in a parable, you're going to kill me. And you're going to throw me out of the vineyard. Now, if someone told me what I was going to do in two days, or they said to me today, you're going to go out that door when you leave here. I would do everything in my power to go out that door. Because I'd prove you wrong. But they're so committed in their anger and in their hatred and in their vitriolic spirit toward Jesus that they're going to destroy him even if he tells them the plot that they are planning. Now that's an amazing thing to me as I think about this. If he knows what they're going to do to him and he even tells them what they're going to do to him, don't you think he knows what he's going to do with you? If he can tell his enemies what they're going to do, he can tell you what you're going to do. And he can tell what's going to happen to you. 
and what's going to come in your life. And that's an amazing thing to think about for just a minute as far as we think of the eternity of God and His ability to have providence and to know the future. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, plans for good and not for evil, to bring you hope and a future. Do you believe that with your life? Do you believe that He has a plan that has a future and a hope for you? Because sometimes in your Christian walk, sometimes in your life, you can get so low. You can get like Joseph and say, God, have you forgotten me? Have you forgotten me? And that's possible to happen in your life. And so I want to preach a message around this idea, this theme. So here it is, and I'd like you to grasp it and really think about it even this week. God has a plan that supersedes all of the plots that have been plotted against you. God has a plan that supersedes all the plots that have been plotted against you. And he considered the plots when he made the plan. And he determined that all the plots plotted against you would serve his plan. You got that? God has a plan that supersedes all the plots that have been plotted against you. And he considered the plots when he made the plan. And he determined that all the plots plotted against you would serve his plan. Say that with me five times real fast, right? Okay. I just want you to get that in your heart. That, that every movement of God in your life and everything everybody plots against you, God's going to take it and He said, I'm going to give you a future and a hope with that. And He's a perfect example of that here in this little parable story because He's telling them, you're going to kill me. And He's okay with it. Okay, so with this background of that introduction, I want to identify the symbolism of this story. So I want to give you that up front, and then I want to preach on it, okay? So here's the symbolism of the story. First of all, this parable comes from Isaiah chapter 5, and what Jesus did in this passage is he reworks the Isaiah 5 passage, and he makes it fit his culture and context of this day. So it's an amazing thing that he's doing here. The owner of the vineyard is God the Father. That's not hard to see. He's the owner of the vineyard. The vineyard is the nation Israel. The vine dressers are the religious leaders of Israel. They're the Pharisees, the priests, the elders, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, all of those that I've talked about through this whole series on Mark. They are the vine dressers. The servants, the servants are the prophets of God through history. They are the fruit pickers that God keeps sending back to get the fruit, to pick the fruit. And then the Son, of course, is Jesus Christ, God's Son. So it's not hard to get some of that symbolism and that uh, typology, but I want you to see it there because that's going to matter for what I say now in this message here this morning. All right, so I've outlined this message around this, the four P's of God's perfect plan. The four P's of God's perfect plan. Number one, what God prepares, what God prepares. If you look at the preparation of God here in the first two verses, he says that he plants a vineyard, he puts a wall around it, he digs a vat under the wine press and built a tower, rented it out to the vine growers and went on a journey. Now, I've already told you the symbolism of that, so you should be able to figure this story out as you look through here. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard. That's the fruit pickers going back to the vine growers to get what they got. 
Okay? And so, in this passage here, you see a few things about God that you want to see as the groundwork here. First of all, God's provision that He gives in terms of how He prepares. He takes a choice vine, and He begins to cultivate the vine. I was talking to one of the wine growers in North Carolina when I went to visit one of the wine uh, vineyards, and I was asking him how long it takes to get your first produce out of the ground. He said it takes about four to five years in North Carolina to get your first produce out of it. He said you can make a small fortune in wine growing and making wine, producing wine, but you've got to have a lot of acreage. You've got to have lots and lots of land. That that's the key to make a small fortune in wine growing. Just thought you might want to know that if you're thinking about going into it, okay? But anyways, he takes a choice vine. He plants a wine vineyard with one vine. That would be Abraham, the start of the nation of Israel. And he begins to grow his garden, his vineyard. God's the wine grower. And uh, by the way, in Israel, it is one of the most important agricultural endeavors of the entire nation. It was in the first century and it is in the 21st century. Wine and olive oil are their two biggest productions. So God is taking extraordinary care here and providing for Abraham and his nation. He's building a wine press, a place to hold the vine, vats to hold the, the wine. He's weeding it, he's trimming it. There's long hours being put in, and this soon becomes, over time, the nation of Israel. Then there is God's protection. He puts a hedge around it, a fence around it. He does that because all wine growers do that in regions of Israel for two reasons. One, to prevent the animals from getting to the grapes. And number two, to keep the people out that would want to steal the grapes. So they're trying to do it from thieves is with the idea of building these towers. Then what he would do, he would build towers. And with these towers, he would take tenants the vine dressers, the guys who are going to care for the land. He takes these vine dressers and he lets them sleep in the tower so they can watch at night and observe the land to see if any intruders are coming on the land, whether it be people or animals, and they watch for it. They are the religious leaders of Israel, protecting and taking care of the people of Israel. That's the religious leaders. Then you see God's patience. It takes years, four to five years, to get a crop, so the owner leaves during that time to invest in other businesses. He's anxious and excited at the end of the five years to see what happened with his crops. So he sends back one of his servants, a fruit picker. And the fruit picker goes back to bring some fruit or wine back to him to see how it's done. 50% goes to the owner. This is how it works in Israel today. 50% goes to the owner and 50% goes to the fruit pickers and the vine dressers. The ones who care for the garden and the ones that pick the fruit. And that's how they do their business. Well, things don't go well. The vine dresser keeps hurting and maiming the fruit pickers. Because they don't want the produce going back to the owner. They want to keep it for themselves. Now, the question you have to ask yourself is, why are so many servants being sent? Why are so many fruit pickers being sent by God? He sends one and another one and another one, and some they maim, some they kill, but they, he just, God keeps just sending them. Like, if I was the fifth guy going on this trip, I'd be like, I'm not going. Odds are against me that I'm even going to survive when I get to the vineyard, okay? That's kind of how we would think, but you have to understand the point of the parable is talking at a bigger level here, 
And what actually is going on here is, this is a picture of the patience of God. With Israel and with you. This is how patient God is with you when you stiffen up with God. When you harden your neck or you say, I'm not going to do that or I'm not going to bend or your wife says, you're being so stubborn. I don't care. This is, this is the patience of God with his people. He is long-suffering with his people. He keeps reaching out and reaching out and reaching out and striving and wooing and convicting and trying to draw you and them to himself. It's a beautiful picture ever since the beginning of time. Adam eats of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he goes into hiding. So what does God do as the first prophet in the word of God? He goes looking for Adam. Where are you? And then when the earth becomes incurably corrupt, and God says, that's it, I've had enough, I'm going to destroy it with the flood, he comes to Noah and he says, my spirit shall not always strive with man because God's spirit strives with man. He keeps wooing and convicting and drawing and trying to bring them to himself. That's the kind of spirit God has within him. You stiffen, you harden, and God keeps coming to you and he keeps speaking to you from different angles. It could be a spouse, it could be a friend, it could be a, a judgment, it could be anything. But God, God's spirit strives with man. But God at that point said in Genesis 6, I'm fed up. Noah says, I can see why you're fed up, God. What are you going to do? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give them 120 years to get it right. You know anybody like that? You want it right tomorrow. God says, I'm going to give you 120 years to get this thing right. And so they build the ark for 120 years, and Noah keeps saying, it's going to rain. It's going to rain. And people don't listen. They harden their heart. They stiffen their neck. And God says, I'm going to bring judgment. God says, I'm done. That's it. See, there is a point that God will strive with you. He will strive with you, and he will woo, and he cares about you, and he's long-suffering, and he'll put up with a lot of junk. But there is a point, the Bible says, though often reproved, though often spoken to in different ways, he hardens his neck, Proverbs 29 says, he will suddenly come to destruction. He will bring destruction on himself because God said, that's it. You've crossed a line with me. You kept playing around with this thing. You thought you could pull it off. You got away with it for a while. But God says, I've drawn a line. You may not see that line. That line may be invisible to you, but there's an invisible line between God's mercy and God's wrath. No man knows when he really crosses it. But the truth of the matter is, the Bible says, though being often reproved, he hardens his neck. He shall suddenly be destroyed. That's a good warning to all of us because that's really the heart here of a patient God. A patient God. Okay, let's go on. Number two, what God provokes, what God provokes, which is an interesting point for me because he is deliberately provoking his enemies. He's deliberately upsetting his enemies because he's setting them up to kill him. He knows he's going to die, and he's setting them up. And so he tells them this little story, and he's basically saying to the Pharisees and the leaders in the Sanhedrin, I know your plans, boys. You're going to kill me. 
You're going to kill me. Bring it on. Bring it on. They're, they're, he is actually provoking them to bring it on because in two days he will be killed by them. So they think it's their plan when God says it's my plan. So he provokes them. Verse 3, you see the escalating cruelty of the fruit picker. The fruit picker sent back. The first one sent back in verse 3 and they beat him. The second one in verse 4 is sent back and they hit him on the head. They hit him on the head. The verse 5 the next one is sent, and they decide, the vine dressers decide to kill him. And then the Bible says they just keep doing this. They keep killing him. They hit him on the head. Maybe they get away, and they get beaten, and they get away. But, but if we could kill him, we'll kill him. So they kill him who they can. Kill all who they can that come to the vineyard. Now, who is this? This is all the leaders of Israel in the history of time. The kings and the priests, more specifically, that were given and called to guard the people of Israel, and they did not guard them. They did not guard them. They did not take care of them. As a matter of fact, every time a prophet came, the kings and the priests persecuted and killed them. That's the history of Israel, if you trace it down, okay? Let me give you a few examples. David was a prophet. And before he was a king, as a prophet, King Saul was so jealous of him, so jealous of him, David was over there playing his guitar, just like those guys played the guitar today. And, and they're strumming, he's strumming on the guitar, and Saul picks up a spear and throws it at David while he's right in the middle of his worship music. Can you imagine if that would have happened today? Noah's sitting up there, the rock won't move. But Noah will, and they're throwing spears at him. Get, can you imagine him trying to have a worship service, and they're throwing spears at the guys on stage? I mean, think about that for a minute. It's crazy. That's what Saul did. Because he was so jealous of David that he wanted to kill him. All right? Da uh, so you got David. you got Elijah on Mount Carmel. He killed 400 prophets and proved that God is God, where the water licked up the fire. And as a result of that, you'd think there'd be revival in the land of Israel. There was no revival. Jezebel said, I get my hands on you, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And King Ahab, weak little King Ahab says, go get him, baby, go get him. And Jezebel goes after him to kill him. If this day is over, I'll have you dead. I mean, here's the guy showing the demonstration of the power of God. And Jezebel says, I'll kill you. I'll kill you. I'll kill you. Jeremiah, he writes a prophecy on a parchment, on a, on a paper, and he gives it to the king, and the king says, I don't want to hear this. And he takes the paper, and he cuts it up, he throws it in the fire, and then he says, go get Jeremiah and throw him in a muddy pit. And they threw him in a muddy pit. They left him there for weeks. Who wants a job like that? That's what they do with the prophets. That's what they do with their history with the prophets. Then there's Micaiah, uh, uh, the uh, the prophet Micaiah, King Jehoshaphat, and the king of Israel came together to do battle against the Ammonites. And in that battle, uh, the king of Judah said, hey, before we go into this battle, we need to get a prophet to tell us if we should go fight this battle or not. And the king of Israel says, man, I, uh, there's probably a prophet I could get, but, but he's in prison right now. He's in prison. What's he doing down there? Well, every time he gives me a prophecy, he tells me bad news. So I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't really want to listen to the king of Jews says, go get him. Go get him. That's the guy we need. But the truth is, the king of Israel never stopped to ask, is the bad news the guy's telling me true? 
Is the bad news the guy's telling me true? And see, they don't want to hear the prophets. They don't want to hear them. Uh, I didn't put this in a picture form, but Isaiah, I didn't think it looked good on a picture form, he was one of the greatest prophets in Israel. And the Bible says they put him in a log and they sawed him in half. They sawed him in half. That's got to hurt. It's got to hurt. I, I can't imagine. I just can't imagine the cruelty they had toward the prophets. This is what verse 2, 3, and 4 and 5 is about, is about the destruction of all the prophets, the fruit pickers that were going back to bring the results back to God and to warn them. Now, why are the religious leaders doing? Why are the kings and priests doing this in the Old Testament? They're rebelling. They want the sole power over their kingdom. Oh, yeah, we want God to answer prayer. <laughs> oh, yeah, we want God to support us. And oh, yeah, we wanted God to help us when we get in trouble. But we don't want him to control us. We don't want him to have control of our will. We don't want to give him surrender in our life. They want all the credit for their power. They want all the credit. They want to call the shots. Oh, help us, God, but I'll call the shots. That's why they killed the prophets. Now, there, there's a couple ways I could have gone with this, and I wasn't exactly sure how to do this, because these prophets, uh, uh, these leaders of Israel, these Pharisees and Sanhedrin, were really clever uh, in how they ran their country. Because their cleverness was, when Isaiah was killed and sawed in half, they built a tomb to him. And in the first century, this is hundreds of years later, they had a tomb in Jerusalem with the bones of Isaiah in it. And they would come out to this tomb, this, this like a mausoleum, and they would, they would whitewash it, they'd make it beautiful, and they would say things like this. We'd have never killed Isaiah. Now, our daddy may have done it, and our forefathers may have done it, but we'd have never done that. The truth of the matter is, if Isaiah was living in that first century, they'd have killed him too. And so Jesus, at the beginning of these verses, is rebuking the forefathers of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the priests, and, and their thought was, well, our parents may have done that, but we'd have never done that. Our forefathers may have done that, but we wouldn't have done that. We've kind of overcome those issues. We wouldn't have rejected those prophets today. Seriously? In two days, you're going to kill the prophet of all prophets. You're going to do exactly what they did, but it's going to be worse. Which really tells me something about the human heart. And I wanted to share this with you. We are incredibly good critics of our past. We are incredibly good critics of the past. Take Holocaust. If you live back in Holocaust, it'd be a no-brainer, wouldn't it? You'd say, I wouldn't have been on the wrong side on that one. I would have said it's wrong. Slavery, 1800s. If you live back then, you'd probably say, I'd have been on the right side of that. I'd have said slavery's wrong. And the, and the truth is, the matter is, we are good critics of our past. And I want to even go a little deeper with this. We are amazing critics of our parents, too. We are blind to our own issues, but we can see what everybody else did wrong. When I see my parents, I've got to think about this, I shouldn't think I'm not going to be like them 
in that way. They did some good things and they did some, I'm not going to do those bad things. I'd never be like that. Well, what we should really think when we think about our parents is, I'm from them. They produced me. The red flags of the past should fully convince us we are capable of the same sins and horrors they do. I had to admit this to myself. I can fall into any grievous sin known to man, and I can still be your pastor. I wouldn't be your pastor after I committed the grievous sin, but I can fall as far as anyone else does. See, back then they thought they were doing the right thing. You take slavery. There were preachers that stood in the pulpit and said, it's justified, it's right, and they would give arguments for slavery to be okay. Of course, they didn't want to be the slave. So they had good argument and justification. Holocaust. When, the, when General Eisenhower went in and finally conquered Germany and they came to the concentration camps, he was so overtaken. See, they had never actually seen the concentration camps until the end of the war. And so he was so overtaken by that, he made every one of his soldiers walk through the concentration camps so they would know why they were fighting. So he made every one of his men go through concentration camps. Then he took the locals of the Germans who were in the little cities that weren't killed during the war and he brought them to the concentration camps and he made them walk through it. It's an amazing thing when you read some of the history on that. When they headed into the concentration camps, they were lighthearted and even laughing. One reason they were laughing is because they were alive and many of the German soldiers were dead and the United States did not kill them. And they were de but they were desensitized to what was going on. So when they went into the concentration camps as the soldiers and they saw the mangled bodies, they saw the malnourished survivors, they saw the mass burial graves, they saw the horrific condition, every one of them walked out crying. Now what is hard for us to see sometimes is we can look back at a culture and say, well, I would have never done that. But the wicked sins are not just going on in our past, they're going on right now. Abortion. You just can't hear their screams. They're silent. Sexual crimes, genocide, human trafficking. And by the way, we've, Jason and I are going to go meet with a couple ministries to, uh, that are in the human trafficking arena and to see how we can be involved as a church to help uh, here's what I'm saying to you. You've you got to look at your own life with clarity. It's easy to look at the past. It's easy to look at everybody else's life, but you've got to look at your own life with clarity. Identifying the sins of others is always a great way to ignore our own. So Jesus looks at these Pharisees, these Sanhedrin, and he says to them, your parents were worse, you're worse. You're going to kill the prophet of all prophets. You're going to kill me. You're going to kill me, and I'm God. That's what, that's what he was actually saying here, and, and that's why it says in verse 6, God the Father said, I'll take my beloved son. 
That is only used three times in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 1 where he opens the skies and a voice from heaven comes down with the spirit of the dove and says, this is my beloved son. That's Mark 1. Mark 9, the transfiguration where the voice comes from heaven again when Jesus is transfigured and God the Father says, this is my beloved son. And then here in Mark 12, only time it's used in the book of Mark is those three times. It's my beloved son. This, this speaks of the vulnerability of God. The vulnerability of God. They'll respect him. And, and I'll send my son because he has a legal claim to the vineyard. He is the heir and the servant at the same time. He is the heir and he's the servant of the vineyard. They'll respect him. And what this is, is this is a plot to kill the beloved Son of God. And Jesus is laying it out here. He said that when he would send his beloved Son, verse 7, but those vine growers, the leaders of Israel, said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. We'll have total control of everything. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. It's an amazing thing to think about, the vulnerability of God. The moment Jesus stepped on this earth from his birth to his execution, there was not a moment in time that his life was safe from humanity. Not a moment in time. Nobody wants to hear it, but our basic fallen nature is not just indifferent to God. We hate God. He is our mortal enemy. Humans will stop at nothing to rid themselves of his sovereignty. If God was given to Forsyth and Guilford County and power was given to the people to destroy him, I believe this, his life would not last 60 seconds today. Don't fall for these people and these organizations that say to you, we have tolerance for Jesus. The truth of the matter is get down to the bottom of a human heart and there is hostility in the human heart to Jesus. This isn't just theoretical because it happened just as Jesus predicted. They did kill him. They took God's son, the son of God. They killed him and they cast him out of the vineyard. They cast him out of the vineyard. Two days later, they literally crucified him. They took him outside the city, outside the vineyard of God, and they left him there to rot with no proper burial. Why? God provoked it to show the depth of the evil of the human heart. God provoked it to show the depth of the evil of the human heart and the need for that human heart to have a Savior. If you cannot see your heart at that level, you'll never seek a human Savior. In other words, there's something about your heart that is desperately wicked. And and you can believe, it says, who can know it? I can't even know the depth of my own heart. You can't even know the depth of your own heart. Of course, we would speak more in terms of the flesh of our life, the, the, the power of the flesh, but for the unsaved, unregenerate person, the depth of their human heart, they can't even know it. It's deceitful. 
It's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And God wants to show us how desperately wicked man's heart is. Desperately deceitful that you can believe you're on the right path. I'm on the right path with my life. But your heart is so deceitful you're actually on this path. That's how deceitful the heart is, the Bible says. And so it's a desperately wicked thing. But in realizing that, then you can see your need for a Savior. You see your need for a Savior. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. Okay, that was, that was number two. Let's go on. Number three, what God proclaims. What God proclaims. Let me, let me just show you this. Verse 9, it says, What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builder rejected became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So what is God going to do? What will God do to them that kill his son? They stepped over a line, an invisible line they didn't see. The Bible says he will destroy the vine dressers. In Isaiah 5, it says he will destroy the vineyard. In, in the passage here, it says he will destroy the vine dressers. And he will give the vineyard to another. What's he going to do? I'll destroy the temple. I'll destroy the sacrificial system. I'll just destroy the Jewish priesthood. I'll destroy the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. And I'll give the vineyard to others. And the Christ they killed is vindicated. He's resurrected from the dead. And he still becomes the, the center of all the works of God. The whole plot fails because it is superseded by the plans of God. This is the great mystery of redemption history. And so he quotes uh, uh, Psalm 118 here at the end. The stone, Jesus Christ, which the builders, the leaders, the religious leaders of Israel rejected, became the chief cornerstone, and he started a new building called the Gentile Church. Now, there are Jews that get saved today, but it's predominantly Gentile because God said, I'm going to take this church and it's going to become the chief cornerstone for the birth of the church today. And then it was built up by apostles and teachers and eventually anyone who would repent of their sin and come to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, what are the, San, what are the Sanhedrin and all these leaders do with that? Verse 12, they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Where did they go to? They went to their place where they continued to connive. They'd just been told they're going to kill Jesus, and that's exactly what they still do. They connive, they secretly plan, they conspire to murder Jesus. What you have to see here is you don't want to ultimately see the Roman soldiers killing Jesus. It was the clergy of the vineyard. The clergy of the vineyard killed Jesus. They killed God's only beloved. Now this speaks to me in a couple ways and this is one that I wanted to share with you. There is great accountability in serving God. You can be replaced. You can be replaced. I can be replaced. And that is to sober us. That all of us can be replaced. When you get so comfortable with how you're living and you let pride sneak in 
And you're able to judge everybody else's shortcomings and how everybody else fails, but you won't let God judge you. That's a dangerous place because you can be replaced. They thought they were great leaders, but they were terrible leaders. They were blind. All right, let me close this up. Number four, what God prizes. What God prizes. Remember, it's a vineyard. It's a vineyard. And what God prizes over everything else, what he ultimately, you boil this whole passage down, what he wants from you is fruit. Fruit. He wants fruit from you. You are a steward. You are a fruit picker for him. And you're giving the fruit to the owner of the vineyard. A true disciple, a follower of God, has fruit. You say, well, tell me exactly what is fruit in my life. I'll tell you what fruit in your life is. It's everything you've been entrusted with. Everything you've been entrusted with. Yes, it's your money. Yes, it's your time. Yes, it's your resources. Yes, it's your children. But it's even more than that. It's everything that you've been entrusted with. All of it. Everything I've been entrusted with. Everything you've been entrusted with. That's what's owed to God. So the question you have to really answer as your time goes in your life, are you bearing fruit for God with what you've been given? Are you bearing fruit for God for what you've been given? That's, that's such an important question. It's an important question for me. Now, I didn't want to stop this message on that downer, but I do want you to think about it because it is a little bit of a downer. But let me also do one other thing before I close. I don't know, the month of July affected me. We were finishing up the building and we were doing some other things and I just thought, I want to take a minute just to congratulate this congregation and this body of Christ for your fruitfulness because on the positive side, I see a lot of fruit here. For example, I didn't even know we have almost 100 greeters in our church. 100 greeters and it's almost like over the last month, God opened my eyes to what you are doing right. Where you are bearing fruit. It's not everything, but it's some things. That There's a bearing of fruit here, and I've seen it. I've seen it in people who've helped on this building. I've seen it with the greeters. I've seen it with the quilters. I've seen it with the nursery coordinators. I've seen it with the workers in the nursery. I've seen it with the givers, the counters, the ushers, the food preppers. I know I'm going to miss somebody. I saw it the week of VBS. I saw all kinds of things done here where people were like little ants running in every direction and serving and bearing fruit. Bearing fruit, it moved my heart. It dro I drove away so grateful for so many of you. And, and the one thing I, I told God that day, it, it really brought me to tears when I thought about this church and you folks. And I said, thank you, God, for letting me serve here. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. It's a beautiful thing to see a church that bears fruit. Beautiful thing. Okay, let's pray.
just with your heads bowed, eyes closed, praise team's going to come, play a song. We're going to have an invitation. You want to come to the altar, you come. I, I first want to speak to you that may be here today. Is God reproving you? Is he convicting you? Is he wooing you? Is there something in your life right now? He's just saying, get, get, that, get, that, get that gone. That's got to go. That spirit, that attitude. Now, you may be here, and one of the reasons that may be true of you is because you've, you've never been saved. That Jesus Christ wants to save you from your sin. That Jesus Christ put himself in the hands of sinful men to save sinful men. <laughs> sinful men killed Jesus so that Jesus could save sinful men. And that's why he died. That's why he shed his blood. That's why he was poured out as a sacrifice for you, for you. And if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, if you've never repented of your sin and been convicted of him, said, man, I'm, I'm wrong. My sin deserves judgment. I know, I know. And God says, if you just admit that, just admit it. Jesus, I want to turn from that and I want to turn to you. Be my Lord, be my Savior. Save me, save me. That's your prayer right now. Ask Jesus to save you. It's coming right from your heart. Jesus, save me. If you're here and you're saved, And you know Jesus. Work at that fruit. Work at that fruit. Everything you have, your very breath, is His. You're a steward. You're a fruit picker. Make sure you get to the end of your life and you got some fruit to give back to Him. It's not a guilt thing. It'll flow out of you. It'll flow out of you. Father, I pray you take this time now and this word that I've preached as faithful as I know how and as best I know how. And may we bear fruit. Some 10, some 50, some 100 fold that we'll bear for you. Lord, I pray your blessing over us now and our hearts desire to do that with our lives. We commit it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Praise team's going to lead us in this song. If there's a need in your heart to bring to the altar, you come.